0: According to today's podcast guest, Dr. Anita Federici, emerging new research in the field of psychology shows that 40-50% to of people diagnosed with BPD actually don't have BPD at all. I know, I was shook by this as well. If you're wondering what is the reason behind this mass misdiagnosis, Anita believes it's a fundamental misunderstanding of and lack of awareness around the concept of something called emotional over control. On today's episode, we're going deep into these findings. We're going to learn all about the difference between under control, over control, and how these concepts are changing the way not just bpd but complex trauma is viewed diagnosed and treated also if you are a super fan of the podcast you know i am a nerd supreme so you know i fangirled real hard when dr federici goes into detail about the time that she was able to meet and work with dr marshall and who is the creator of dbt therapy so you're gonna get to hear that story as well now anita is humble as hell but i want to preface this episode by telling you that you are extremely privileged your ears are blessed to be able to have an hour of Anita's time today on the podcast. I know I felt so honored myself. Anita is a trailblazer in the field of personality disorder and eating disorder research. She has made countless scholarly contributions to the field. She and her team train other therapists, entire hospitals, and she runs her own practice in Ontario. So needless to say, she's freaking amazing. And it was such a blessing to be able to sit down with her for an hour. And I know you're going to learn so much from our conversation. If you have ever seen anything floating around the internet about quiet BPD, and you've thought, that's me you're going to get a lot from today's episode because when I learned about the concept of emotional over control, I knew immediately that this episode and this concept would really, really resonate with individuals that identify with quiet BPD or quiet Borderline personality disorder. So let's roll that intro, and then we will hop right into my conversation with Doctor Anita Federici. All this focus, focus, is supposed to be scientific, 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 scientific. This podcast is not a substitute for professional treatment of BPD. I am not a psychiatrist, a therapist, or a doctor. I'm a human being sharing the highs and lows of my own recovery. Expect mature subject matter, probably put the kids away. Above all else, this is a place for getting real, so triggering topics will come up. All right, if you're into it, let's get into it. You have entered back from the borderline the place to be for the tea on all things BPD. I'm your host, Molly. After my diagnosis, I decided to make it my life's mission to become an emotional grown-up. This marked the beginning of a journey of self-discovery and research that resulted in massive mindset shifts. The more I learned, the less control my BPD symptoms had over my life. On this podcast, I'll be serving up all the tips, tricks, and vulnerable conversations you'll need to deepen and expand your own recovery process as you join me in mine. You are not alone. Together, let's design a life free of BPD. Alright, time to settle in and get ready to absorb today's episode. here with Dr. Anita Federici, who is a clinical psychologist, but I will open the floor to you, um, Anita, and let you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your credentials, and kind of maybe you could tell us initially what got you into this work.
1: Well, first, thanks so much, Molly. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So thanks for inviting me uh, to speak about this really important topic area. I do have a, a PhD in clinical psychology, and I've been practicing... In the area of personality disorders, mostly borderline personality disorder and eating disorders. Those are sort of my two major specialties. For about 20 years, I run a, a clinic in Ontario, sort of in a more underserved region of, of the province, which is interesting because, the, as you know, as you get further away from cities, uh, urban centers, the less information, the less access to resources and, and help there is. And it's really, um, frustrating. So I run a clinic there where we offer a uh, full, uh, dialectical behavior therapy. Um, and we also offer something called radically open DBT, which is for people who struggle, struggle with emotional, uh, under or over control, but something maybe we can talk about. So,
0: yeah, so it's great to be here. Thanks. Yes. Thank you so much. I think that uh, talking about over and under control is a really good place to start because it's not something that I've gotten into too much on the podcast. So maybe you can explain to the listeners what you mean by over and under control and how that relates to something like borderline personality disorder and complex trauma in general.
1: Yeah. This is such a, um, a fascinating area that has really become more clear even in the last 5 or 6 years thanks to advances in neuroscience really so when you think about borderline personality disorder the typical description of that is really of someone who struggles with uh, controlling managing integrating communicating emotions and theoretically the idea is that people uh, have a biological propensity for f- feeling emotions in a really intense manner so the idea is that they are biologically primed to um, to feel things really intensely uh, to be quite sensitive to emotional stimuli in their environment and that it takes them a lot longer to kind of settle back down and you see this in complex trauma as well you see this in a lot of things actually and so the idea of emotional, under control is just that. You have somebody that really is more impulsive, can't really contain their emotions, um, often works from emotion mind, if you're familiar with DBT states of mind, where things are kind of like hot and, and you know, and intense. And that's why you see relationships sometimes being characterized by lots of ups and downs or, or or not really knowing who they are from an identity perspective, because it's really hard to do those things when you're emotionally on a roller coaster. Okay. The the interesting thing is that we know from neuroscience that this really does originate in, in the brain in processes that are genetic and biologically determined. You don't pick uh, how emotionally, how emotionally self-controlled you are. So let's, let's look at the other side for a minute. Dr. Thomas Lynch uh, started to look at the fact that not everybody who, who seemed to come in with borderline personality disorder was emotionally under controlled. You know, some, some clients didn't need more help tolerating distress. Oh my gosh, they were already experts.
0: <laughs> right. And yes. so he started to. yeah. Do you, do you see that? Or do oh you? yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And so, He started to study this subgroup of patients that had a lot of problems with emotions and relationships and and suicide and self-harm even, Mm. but who weren't the typical uh, under-controlled presentation. Mm. And what he started to find was that their self-control or their emotion regulation tendencies were quite different. They were emotionally over-controlled, meaning that they they are masters at masking, masters at suppressing, shoving it down. Um, One of my colleagues uh, who uh, is doing a lot of radically open DBT here in Ontario, Sharon Zister, she will often say, it's like sunshine on the outside, razor blades on the inside.
0: Oh my God. I can relate to that. But what do you think about this? Because I myself have been obviously in my recovery journey, really trying to go pick apart how I, uh, handle my emotions, obviously without being too hard on myself, that's such a hard thing to do, right? I'm like hyper analyzing how I react to things, but as I've started tuning into how I handle things, Anita, it's either like, it's like I oscillate between over and under control Mm -hmm. quite Mm -hmm. often. And I think that's why a lot of people, they relate to what, you know, is, in pop psychology, I think often referred to as like quiet BPD. Right. And I think that kind of sounds like over control to me.
1: I think we still need to do more research in this area, but what I can Mm. tell you is that Mm. a couple of things, one, the research suggests that we don't, we have, we all have a core tendency toward one or the other. We're not both. Okay. You're either, and you got to go back. You got to go back to somebody like, what were you like as a kid? Mm-hmm. What were you like growing up? What what What's your temperament? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about not what you've learned to do. So I have clients over the years who were had lots of big
0: emotions when
1: they were kids
0: and were always yeah. told to, you know. That was me. Yeah. That was me. I was the drama queen and Bye. everyone, you know, like always felt things so intensely. I've talked about it in the podcast where yes. I had very existential thoughts as a very young child that I think actually kind of freaked my parents out because they were like, why are you thinking about this shit? Right. (laughs) And, and I learned, I think at a very young age, you're exactly right. I naturally am a very emotional person. Like if someone says something, I feel it so deeply, or if I see a dog on the street and it looks skinny, like I will want to just like ball right then and there where my partner, for example, who's a very logical analytical type, like he Doesn't feel that way, so it's like, and he's still just a kind, empathetic soul, but he doesn't like outwardly burst forth with his emotions like I do.
1: (laughs) And and there's, there's, this isn't about good or bad. Also, this is just about the way our brains are wired. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: and you know, I, I, one of the reasons I love working uh, with folks that struggle with BPD uh, is because you know people are so so damn creative and intelligent and. Amazing and oh, I love watching them recover, and it's just brilliant. And so, so I think it's important to highlight that this isn't about one being good or one being bad. Now, society has ideas about this. Yep. So you're right. You learned, you were shaped out of at times being who you were biotemperamentally. Mm-hmm. Don't be so dramatic, don't be so yes. existential. What is what is oh, that's our strange daughter or however. Yeah, and so. You know, if you're trying to fit in, and you're trying, you know, and sometimes that happens with your peers, your team, your 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 friends in high school are, you know, oh God, what is wrong with you? You're oh, and that's so you you kind of by the time you get to therapy as an adult, you can seem like you have quiet BPD, or maybe you do because because
0: you've learned
1: you've learned to exactly shut right. it
0: down most of the time. Except when it comes out, I like to describe as like my, to my boyfriend, like I will freak out about seemingly very small things, but it's because there's this emotion that I work so hard and suppressing and numbing all the time that it comes out as I describe as like little, like a pressure cooker, you know, like my grandma used to use a pressure cooker to make mashed potatoes and it would just like go like little bits of steam coming out. And that's how I express, like, I I can relate to my emotions because I feel like I'm always just on the edge of just exploding.
1: Well, because you you are in the sense that suppression or masking for someone that's under controlled is only ever going to be a short-term Uh, it's like a band-aid, right? Over like like, that
0: horrible wound.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, so does it work? Can you keep wrapping it? Yeah. So probably that's why it gets reinforced because it has worked. Mm -hmm. You know, you're more accepted. Uh, You're able to get through things without uh, breaking down maybe, but it doesn't, it has, it's not the same as receiving treatment and understanding who you are from a biological and a A learning perspective. And I think that's the richness in some of the the newer comprehensive treatments is really non-judgmentally going, yeah, I'm emotionally sensitive. Yeah. Yes. I feel things. So like, it's the same as having migraines. Like I get migraine headaches. I'm always going to be susceptible to migraine headaches. Did I choose it? No. Do I like it? No. Is it part of my biology and probably genetics? Yeah. So I have to learn to live in a way that mitigates some of that, or what do I do when my migraine hits? Yes. Okay, well then I'm going to do this. Yes, and and so that's the general. So that's one idea. But here's what's interesting about if you think about over control, mm. over control is socially desirable, right? You, yeah, that's that's the perfectionistic, highly driven. Rigid, sometimes obsessive and compulsive, but they are, you know, that's the person who's falling apart and feeling suicidal and is at the hospital on the weekends, but they're like straight A student. You know, that was and I'm not saying I'm not saying that you can't be that mm-hmm. and be under controlled, but the person with over controlled tendencies, they don't always know that they have an issue because it's
0: been so suppressed suppressed and socially acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Cause you're right. Like it's the the best thing for someone maybe to like get a teddy bear and scream everything out on it. You know what I mean? Like the, to get that anger out, but that is so socially unacceptable. And most people would look at that as quote unquote yeah. weird. Right. That's right. But so if you're s-
1: someone that you don't react to things, you always, you know, you, you just, uh, you know, so people that are over-controlled, they, they biologically, from a biotemperamental perspective, they can be just as dysregulated, but they really struggle with um, social signaling. So mm-hmm. they, you know, they can feel they can almost look like they, there's almost no expression on their face, no matter what you're talking about. It's like this mm-hmm. sort of flat affect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're not impulsive. So, <laughs> so unlike under people, that are over controlled. If they do have behaviors, whether they're eating disorder symptoms or self injurious behaviors or alcohol, it will be planned. Mm -hmm. So I think about the, the client. If I have a client with bulimia nervosa and they're under controlled, the binge eating will happen, just it'll be driven by emotion. Yeah. Not planned. They weren't planning to binge that night or that day. Something happened. They're emotional. The behavior happens. Mm. Someone that's over-controlled, it, it isn't actually, the behaviors aren't really driven by emotion. They're driven by, you know, uh, values, ethics, wanting to get back at somebody and they're planned. So they'll know, you know what? I'm not going to binge tonight because my husband's home, but I'm going to binge tomorrow night because the house is, em- like, it's not impulsive. Mm. It's like premeditated. It, 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 yeah. It's because that's how their brain works. Yeah. So there's a very big difference between emotional over-control and under-control. And some early research, Molly, is saying that about 40 to 50% of people who have been diagnosed as having borderline personality disorder actually don't. They might have obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. They're actually over-controlled personalities. Mm -hmm. But because there's disturbance... Everybody kind of lumps them into the same category. They may, they may dis-
0: I feel like anybody that displays like self-harming or yeah. or suicidal ideation, and especially if you're a woman, it's like oh BPD, yeah. exactly. BPD, right? And what you're saying is there you is know. a huge misdiagnosis situation going on. I
1: think potentially, potentially. I mean, we the research is just starting to come out, but I think even for my staff, so we've spent the last I don't know two years studying, training, getting supervision, consulting in radically open DBT. And it has Mm. greatly changed (laughs) Uh, assessment procedures, uh, treatment recommendations. Mm. And we actually have more people right now in our radically open DBT track than in our DBT track. And it's fascinating. And, but the, the assessment, like sometimes people say to me, well, how do I know? It's a bit complicated because you need It usually takes us a good hour or so filling out very specific questionnaires and assessment measures um, to really sort through this, but there's ways of getting those tests and those assessments done. And it really is eye-opening. It really
0: is. Fascinating. And so this brings me to another question I have for you, Anita, because for me, something I've been posting a lot about on Instagram, and I'm the... Whenever I post something and then I just get this wave of, yeah, oh my God, me too, like replies. I'm just like, okay, so I've touched on a nerve, right? I've touched on something that people are really resonating with. And something I posted about more recently that just got a wave of response was my obsession I had a couple of years ago with getting a diagnosis, right? I thought I had BPD. I was so convinced that I had BPD because I looked up all the symptoms and tick, 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 tick. That it's often that I find, and then I had a bunch of people say, me too, and I just said release the obsession with having to have a label, right? Like mm-hmm. the fact, and and I keep getting messages from people that are like, I'm going to a a, a therapist, but they won't give me the diagnosis. Oh, yeah. They, I know I have BPD, but they won't give it to me, mm-hmm. and I'm like, and then I had my DBT therapist who told me Molly very candidly, she's like. You have classic BPD traits, but I'm not going to put BPD down as a main diagnosis for you because of the stigma and it could affect your ability to get life insurance in the future. So I'm like, A, do you find this? And then B, I'm like, God, why even have a diagnosis that could create so much hell for someone's life? It's just so, it's a head (laughs) (laughs) F-U-C-K.
1: That is well said. Well said. (laughs) Uh, I, so there's, you're bringing up a couple of pieces and if I, if I'm going in the wrong direction, just, just interrupt There's no,
0: there's no wrong direction. There's no wrong direction. I love
1: that. I love that. Okay. So the first part is, is, is okay. I believe, and I think, did you post this? I do believe people have the right to know their diagnosis. Yes. I've always, I've said this, I I find it frustrating and I'm not just talking about BPD here. I'm talking about, I think that if, if you as a clinician or a team, are working on some sort of theory yeah right i think this person has bpd i think this person has narcissistic personality disorder i think this person has an eating disorder i can't tell you how many times in my career when i've consulted and i say to the clinician or the team have you have you floated this out to the client and resoundingly the the answer is no most of the time mm. There are reasons. So one, I think I want people to also appreciate that not everybody's legally allowed to diagnose. Yeah. So most, you know, you have to be a psychologist, a psychiatrist. There are it's it's a regulated health act. So Mm -hmm. if if a social worker or a registered psychotherapist communicates a diagnosis to you,
0: that legally is an issue that could jeopardize their license. Oh, so like normal therapists can't diagnose you, like a like a, a licensed ma- marriage and family uh, therapist, for example. No, not a
1: not, like, You always have to like different. I mean, in in this parts of the states or different parts of the world, there's always different legislation. Yeah, right. But for the most part, no, not just because you're a, a therapist of some sort does not mm-hmm. mean legally you can communicate a diagnosis. And the reason for that is that without the proper training, I mean, there's so many misdiagnoses, like I I can't, over my career, you know, I can't, again, I can't tell you how many people come in, and they're completely uh, misdiagnosed or have been given seven, eight diagnoses. I think that's why partly the, the act of communicating a diagnosis is regulated, because it's complicated. I don't, it's, you know, it's, and I hear that all the time, you know, people see somebody for 30 minutes and they, they have a laundry list of diagnoses and medications. And it's, it's really scary. Like in my clinic, we tell people we're going to meet with you for four sessions just to see if we can figure out what's going on. And if we agree on what's going on and we can agree on what the treatment plan might be. And even then, I'm not going to know
0: you know you. You know, that's the thing that that makes perfect sense to me. But I find so often that the people that are coming to my podcast or my page, they're saying that, you know, they were just given a diagnosis Mm -hmm. so quickly. And so then they like cling to that diagnosis. And I think the other part of my question I had for you is like, what? Obviously there's good things about having a diagnosis because yes. then you could, you can, you know, find the right treatment that works for you. But I think that our society and especially the younger generation that's coming up is like clinging so tightly to these labels, you know, and I think that it's making it harder for them to find their in individual place. For me, it's helped me to realize, like, I know that I suffer from complex trauma and I know that I I have a hard time with emotion regulation. So I'm going to just pick and choose pieces of recovery stuff that work for me. And diagnoses have actually been really harmful for me personally, because I feel like it stops me from viewing myself as just an individual.
1: I I think... Uh, dialectically, like that there's, you know, multiple things can be true at the same time. I agree with you. I think, whole you think about it, the whole point of a diagnosis is so that it was really designed for clinicians to be able to communicate ideas and and know that we were talking about the same thing. So instead of me having to explain everything, I could say, yes, these three people have bulimia nervosa, and these people have major depression. And it's just a way of and then and then it's supposed to help you define or direct treatment. Okay, so what's the evidence base for bulimia or 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 borderline personality disorder? That's really the the function of it. I do think when done well um some of my best conversations are are giving diagnoses to people. Why? Because because it's empowering. It can be. Yeah. So I say to people, you know, like understanding yourself is half the battle, like really non-judgmentally understanding yourself. And I do think it's important for people to understand the difference between bipolar and borderline PD, for example. You know, I do think it's important for people to understand why someone might think that BPD fits for you. Like, I think let's, let's talk about what that really means, especially now that most people who receive one year of good adherent dialectical behavior therapy no longer meet diagnostic criteria, for example, for BPD. Mm-hmm. So what is, like, it, it just turns the whole thing, this isn't an incurable illness. This isn't a treatment-resistant condition. This is something that that the field didn't understand and had a lot of stigma and judgment about. And the name kind of stinks. <laughs>
0: so, it so does, doesn't it? It really what does. What do you think about I love how you said, you know, this isn't a treatment resistant illness. And also like when they even talking about you so often see in BPD, IG content, for example, is like, is there a cure? Is there a cure? And I'm like, BPD isn't cancer, right? It's not like you go, there's a targeted tumor that then you can like clear with a, with chemo or something like that. It's, it's such a complex thing. And I, I, how do you this, let me frame the question better. Say for instance, a client came to you and said, is there a cure for BPD? Like what, what is my prognosis, Dr. Anita? Like, how do you talk to people about, um, that are like seeking to cure themselves or, or go on the internet and think that they like, they see the stuff on BPD and they think that it's like basically a death sentence.
1: Uh, So there's a few things that I do. One, I would say, stop looking online for BPD information. <laughs> Seriously. Well, unless it's a reputable source, like what you're doing, or, yeah. you know, like, you know, really like, let's, let's check the facts. Let's look at what you're looking at. Okay. And, and first and foremost, yep. on. Yep. two, I would tell you that your prognosis is really good. It's really good. And I would cite the research part of which I just did that, you know, if, if you can get, good adherent dbt and i say that because there's just so many people out there Mm -hmm. saying that they're doing dbt and they're not and that's a huge problem in the field but if you can get Mm -hmm. you know a good dbt treatment right you're you're going most people improve and improve significantly Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. so there's that part i think i also tell people that like you it's not like a, a cure is so black and white like, I like know, you said, did I remove the tumor or didn't I? Mm. Yeah. So I talk about it more like, I think a lot of, I think, I think, hmm, I think a lot of mental health is like this. I think of BPD or even eating disorders as similar to having like a, a type one diabetes or multiple sclerosis or something, right? Like y- you may go through periods of remission and relapse, like it, it may flare up at times, and you're going to have to learn to manage it. Like my migraines, because it's, 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 it's partly to do with the way your brain works. Mm -hmm. And we know that now, right? Like you don't get to pick how impulsive you are. You just don't. Some people love to take risks, right? So the people that are under controlled, they love, they're, they're bored to tears when they start to recover.
0: They're bored. <laughs> I hear I hear that so often, Anita, is yes. I posted again the other day where it said like basically the the BPD cycle is like seek chaos, then have your life fall apart, get back on the wagon of recovery, get bored, seek chaos again, right? And so often I hear people reaching out to me and saying, Molly, like I'm in a really good relationship, but I'm bored. Like I find myself wanting to go cheat, wanting to, and I can relate to that, not like the cheating impulse, but, um, you know, I find that peace and quiet and calm Mm -hmm. is translated before my recovery journey is bad is like boredom. But I tell them, I'm like, reframe what boredom is, is boredom just peace. Like your system is like addicted to drama. I was addicted to drama before my recovery
1: yeah, I think that's very, very common. I think it's common in trauma. I think that's mm-hmm. common in lots of lots of addiction uh, and certainly in, in BPD. Why? Well, there's two main, two simplified main reasons. One is understanding, again, one's biology. So if your brain, so people that are under controlled, they're they're stimulated by, by things like, so they get this big dopamine rush when they see people and they do something new. And sometimes when you eat food and it's like, Ooh, and it's, it just, it's good feeling stuff. Yeah. Right? So when you take away drugs and alcohol and self-harm and eating disorder issues and, you know, it can feel like the brain is literally understimulated. So yeah. I often work with my clients. How do we get that dopamine release? in a healthier way. Because your brain's wow. wired. Gonna, well, like telling me. <laughs> well, I think it partly depends on who you are and what and, and and what you like. Uh you know, I have a client right now who's exactly in this situation and and doing an amazing job and is is really bored and wants to travel. And of course COVID and blah 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 blah. And I said yeah. to them, I said, I think you need to go like they're one year, totally amazing in recovery. I said, you know, you got to be safe, all kinds of things, but I, I think you need that kind of stimulation. Like, I, I just think you, you've got, so we've got to sometimes plan things that are a bit more stimulating, like, okay, so maybe you, you need to lean into a different sport or maybe you need to go whitewater rafting in the summer, or maybe you need to climb the rock wall. I don't know, but you have to appreciate the way your brain works and that, yeah. You may need to generate healthy dopamine releases. And there's all kinds of ideas here that that's so
0: different that, for the person.
1: It, it really is. So it's not like you can't just say, well, this mm-hmm. is what you do. Cause it really is knowing the person and understanding how they work. And you also have to make yeah. sure that, you know, you also have to look at, so there's your biology. Mm-hmm. Okay. And like you said, it's also important to learn to tolerate stillness. Yes. Right. So someone that's under control, ooh, that's really hard to do. It's uncomfortable. And if there's a trauma history, you know, that's where, you know, it gets too quiet. Some of that trauma stuff can come up. So it really depends, again, on what exactly that boredom means. Mm-hmm. We also have to look at the learning history. So, yes, there's our biology that drives us to do certain things. But in what ways has seeking chaos been reinforcing for you? Maybe that's when your parents pay more attention to you. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's when your partner actually comes home from work early because you're, there's a drama. So the way that you actually have been connected to people is by having chaos or for example,
0: that was certainly true for me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're kind of working with all these layers at the same time um, to help the person break, the old patterns that don't serve you anymore.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, it's so hard. That's another thing that like, I keep telling these, like I I love to tell people and it is hard. Recovery has been the hardest thing of my life because it is so easy to stay just in the same stuff. And actually most people do, don't they, you know, like the vast majority of people don't change. And as you said, society really perpetuates the fact that you should just shove it down and shut up and continue on being pr- pr- uh, productive. So I think that it kind of sucks because I think there's so many people out you out there that you talk about that are over-controlled. And then yeah. quite often, those people that are under-controlled are the scapegoats and they end up in like psych wards, yeah. right? But in reality, we have all of these other people out there that are over controlled too, and they're just getting a pat on the head from society until they inevitably break down one day.
1: Yeah, until there's sort of this what we call emotional leakage. It's kind of like what you were talking about, but the person that's the, so often people come in with a suicide attempt or self harm or something that looks impulsive and dysregulated, and people start to assume things like oh, maybe this is BPD or maybe this is you know without actually looking at dynamics of over and under control because. The overcontrol piece is still relatively new to the broader field. Mm-hmm. Tom Lynch has been working on this for 20 years, but it's not out in the in the system uh, widely. So most providers don't even really know what overcontrolled is or how to assess for it. Uh, so the likelihood of that even getting to the, to our clients is low right now. Um, I just find that you know, it's just such a helpful and we talk about transdiagnostic. So to your point before about I think diagnoses can be helpful to a point if they are commun- if they're appropriate and, and they're assessed properly, if they're communicated in an empowering and non-judgmental manner. Mm-hmm. And that we all understand the limits of diagnoses. Right? Like, okay, so most of the big evidence-based treatments are transdiagnostic, which is What are your symptoms? What are you struggling with? Mm -hmm. So whether you have borderline personality disorder, trauma, an eating disorder, you may do really well in radically open DBT if you're over-controlled versus standard DBT if you're under-controlled. And so it's not, that's why, you know, when Marsha Linehan developed dialectical behavior therapy in the late 80s, early 90s. -hmm. She was really looking at women who were chronically suicidal and self-harming. It evolved into the treatment for borderline personality disorder, but now DBT is widely considered a transdiagnostic treatment for anyone who suffers with emotional under control. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah, um, you know.
0: So, and I have a question for you because yeah. first, uh, have you ever met Marshall Inahan, or have you ever yeah. worked with her? You have. I have. I have a few times in my career. I know I feel so lucky and so blessed. Oh, my um, gosh. So I how did never... that manifest? Oh,
1: I'll show you my picture. Um, well, in a few different ways. The first time I met Marsha, I was a grad student. Uh, I was doing my PhD at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. And uh, my supervisor, my Shelley, Dr. Shelley McMain, uh, was one of maybe 20 researchers that would get invited to Seattle every year for a a highly specialized um, research meeting. You had to be, in order to be invited, you had to be a primary investigator on a randomized control trial using DBT. Wow. So, uh, you know, talk about being at the right place at the right time, but she took me with her. Wow. And at that time, I was working on my dissertation, which was evaluating uh dbt skills only for clients with borderline personality disorder and an eating disorder so we're really looking at this and i'm sitting at this table molly like like a conference table with like the like top tom lynch martin bohas uh katie corslin like marsh is at the head of the table and And this is, Molly, this is before we had cell phones. Like, there's no, I don't have, like, I would have been like, oh. Instagram doing a story. This is Marsha. No, there was none of that. And Marsha asked me to present my dissertation data, which I had on slides. And she got me to sit right beside her at the head of the table. And I presented my research findings. And she was so amazing so i mean like talk about a woman that practices what she preaches uh, like and then she we all went to her house for dinner like it was
0: that's so freaking surreal
1: cool. like surreal um and so and then i've met her several times over the years i've gotten, you know different trainings um uh i've been able to talk to her i've been able to have lunch with her i've been able to do different things with her over the years not not i'm not i wouldn't say that i'm i mean i'm not i'm, I'm not in the in group i'm not like I'm just somebody that's been lucky enough to cross paths with her a few times. She's absolutely a brilliant human being.
0: Oh, that's so amazing. Well, it's my dream that one day I will get to meet her. Um, I I hope that, but you never know what can happen with this podcast. Maybe one day she'll, she'll hear and she'll come on and be a guest because I, mean, I just, be amazing. it would be amazing. It's like my manifestation goal. Like I believe it. I, and you know, I'm out here doing the good work. So I'm sure that one day she'll, she'll come across it. But um, yeah, she's, she's
1: retired now. And so I, it's hard to see much of her these days. Yeah. Yeah she published her memoir.
0: uh, I know I read it like right when it came out and it was just so I, first and foremost, I think what surprised me most about her memoir was like, I knew she actually went through all of this stuff, but her disclosure in that memoir of reading all of her letters to her, her therapist and just what she went through, like it's just mind boggling. And then what she was able to accomplish. It's just like, if anyone on earth thinks that they can't recover and do amazing That's things, it. you have to read, uh, it, what is it? It's like a uh, building a life worth, uh, worth living, uh, by Marshall in because you cannot say you can't go on and do amazing things. And uh, because she was like literally in a psych ward with people throwing yeah. poop at the walls, yeah. like <laughs> back in the seventies and,
1: yeah. and you know, like, well before we had any solid you know what we would consider now to be yes. you know assessments and, 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 that, and
0: like scratched her way through a male dominated field yeah. to create a, a, yeah. a therapy I
1: think the brilliance of Marcia was the ability to walk that line and create solid randomized trials mm-hmm. to, to in, a, in a in a population that people thought was treatment resistant mm. right so yeah. she, i mean the fact that she was able to do that, but if you, when you get to know DBT really well, and that's why, you know, it takes years really, I think, and good supervision to really understand what DBT is. It was never meant to be rigid. Like it, 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 it's very theoretically, theoretically based. And what a clinician does depends on the client's presentation, but also your own knowledge of Zen Mm. psychology, uh, acceptance-based practices, behaviorism. It, and so, it. what? It, it, and that's why it's, so sometimes people have had DBT and it's not really been adherent DBT. Yeah.
0: You know, um, can you tell me what adherent DBT is? Yeah,
1: well, adherent DBT is lots, lots of things. Yeah. Um, so the behavioral tech, which is Marsha's company has an adherence process so that you can actually look online for people that have passed. It's very rigorous. Mm -hmm. Um, So they can pass certification. So that came out a number of years ago. So that's one way to know if somebody has, is, is an adherent
0: provider so one is it's almost like a certification, right? Like is. they it they're is. like the it's like if you go mm-hmm. if you go to the hair salon and they're like a certified by Redken stylist, right? Where it's like yeah. you know that Redken this yes. is watering it down a lot, but it's like to help, like yeah. where it's like you know they were trained by the Redken team. It's exactly it's a seal yeah.
1: of approval. It's 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 you know th- these are people that have done written tests. Mm. These are people that have had their tapes coded by uh, like B Tech trainers. This is, wow. um, you, you know, you've had to submit case conceptualizations. I mean, it is, intense. um, it's very intense. It's just not a simple process. And so to become a DBT, uh, like a, I think to become a good DBT clinician, yeah, it's going to cost you some money and it's going to mm-hmm. cost you a lot of time and commitment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a huge amount of work. So, I mean, I've been, to, I don't know how many trainings in my career, um, uh, and now I provide those trainings, so you know, yeah, those are expensive. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes companies will pay for them, or teams will train together. But, but it's also it's not just about the, the it's not just about the clinician. It's also about what you're receiving. Mm-hmm. So DBT is is a multimodal treatment. So the person should be receiving an hour a week of individual therapy with a DBT trained clinician. And that's very specific. Like what you Mm -hmm. do in that session is very particular. It means that you are attending a weekly DBT skills training group. Mm -hmm. Okay. That could be 90 minutes or two hours a week. It means that you are using phone coaching. Mm -hmm. So if you're not doing phone coaching, it's not necessary. It's not adherent DBT. Mm -hmm. And every provider on the DBT team has got to attend a consultation meeting every week. Ours is two hours a week
0: Mm -hmm. to ensure that we're actually being adherent to the model. Wow. So So, a lot of accountability for the people going through it, as well as the providers. I say to my clients, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to work together,
1: you've got to make a bunch of commitments, but so do I. Yeah. Yeah. Like are we both, are we both available? Are we both ready? Yep. Because sometimes clinicians will say, "Sure, sure, sure," but then they don't want to do the phone coaching. Yeah, uh, they don't want to see the patient every week. Uh, they're judgmental toward the patient because they're maybe tired and burnt out.
0: Yeah, I was going to say. I think a lot that you hear. I think that the impression I've got, and this is obviously my own opinion. It's not a fact, but I've spoken to so many mental health providers at this point, and also people with BPD. And they say like when they've been in patient settings, they experience that stigma of like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's just a borderline eye roll. Right. And I think you can almost feel the fatigue from the mental health professionals because maybe they feel ill-equipped to be able to handle the, you know, someone with BPD, but um, that's very apparent in my conversations is the, is the overwhelm.
1: I really appreciate your dialectical, like, again, so in, in DBT, we say Mm -hmm. to people, you know, everybody's doing the best they can given the way your brain is wired Mm -hmm. and what has been reinforced or learned over time. And those healthcare professionals, I'm not saying that they're, they're right. Nobody, I have a zero tolerance policy for judgment. Like there's just no. mm -mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I do a ton of training with hospitals. Um, And we spend a lot of time on this. Yeah. So, but part of it is that you're working with people who sometimes were trained 20, 30 years ago. Nobody ever trained them how to work with emotion, emotional over or under control. Mm -hmm. Um, Nurses will say, I I was never trained to do this. I don't, you know, so if you're on an inpatient unit, they're like, I don't know. So they don't, they don't even have theories to explain why people are doing what they're doing. Mm. And then you have a system that's usually understaffed, underfunded. So you have, you have people who are tired, Uh and, you know, overcrowded settings, and it's it's a recipe for
0: judgmentalness and stigma and misunderstanding. uh, misunderstanding. You know, I have a really interesting uh, example to give you. I interviewed a DBT therapist named Dana Haynes two episodes ago, and she has now since, like she said, DBT kind of fell into her lap and she never thought she would go into DBT. But her experience was she was a young therapist and her supervisor said, we just lost someone. You need to go run this DBT skills group and literally just flopped the DBT handbook on her lap and said, and said, go. And she went, what? I'm not prepared to do this, like to go run a group, a skills group. And he goes, it's just skills. She said verbatim that he said, just teach them some skills. It's no big deal. And so then someone with a BPD could be like, finally got into a DBT group. And then they go and they're with someone who has no idea what they're doing. And Dana since obviously has like fallen in love with DBT and that's like her only thing that like, she obviously does other things, but she loves DBT now. And she spent, she said most of the things though she has had to take the, the, the onus on herself to learn, but she was thrown into that with no previous experience. I think that's exactly what happens for in many, many places, especially
1: in, in rural or underserved areas where, you know, where are people yes, she gonna, was in New know? Jersey, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're it, I think that people don't realize like when I train clinicians or teams and they, they, you know, the big sell is people want to start a skills group. And I say, well, you can start a skills group, but if you teach those skills, first of all, you've got to know those skills really well and what they're and how they relate to emotion regulation,
0: because
1: mm. uh, it's easy to just read stuff and teach it and it won't really fly. Um, you also have to embody the The dialectical uh, you know, dialectical theory and non-judgmentalness and assumptions about patients, it's just hard to separate it out. For example, we just had this conversation on my team this morning about um, we offer a skills only option. So not everybody has to do full comprehensive DBT, but that is for people who um, score in a mild to moderate range on a particular assessment measure. These are, Folks that are not chronically suicidal and self-harming, you know, and they they still have to have some healthcare provider who's willing to be a crisis contact. Like just because it's skills, it's actually very complicated to to run and to run it well. So people need lots of support and lots of training.
0: They do, they do, and I'm I'm optimistic though because like all of the people that I see that I'm speaking to quite often, they are either in your position where they're like trailblazing a lot of like scholarly work, or like you and Jennifer Roters, for example. Jen Jen is just great. I'm sure you've connected. She's fantastic. And then you have like you know these younger up and coming therapists that may just be like going into marriage and family therapy, for example, but they. Are really open-minded and they want to learn. They're hungry to learn. And so I guess my question for you is, you know, it exists the fact that it's really hard for people that that think they might have BPD to get into a good DBT group, you know. And so what is what are some of the things people can start if they suspect that if they identify with BPD traits, what are some things they can focus on to start um, better understanding emotion regulation?
1: I think, I think that some of the depending uh, depending on some of depending on what they're presenting with, so there are some really good um, short books that they might want to look at. You know, and I can give you a list. I don't know if you can share that, but we can certainly yeah, do that.
0: I can absolutely there's, put that in the show. Because I do
1: think people need good quality. Like, what actually is this? You know, yes, yes. Even going to Marsha Linehan's B Tech website, there's mm-hmm. there's videos about. BPD and what DBT is, uh, I think mm. things like that. I don't know if you've heard about Shireen Rizvi's. I mean, Shireen Rizvi has done so much excellent work. Uh, she's out of Rutgers and she created, uh, among many things, a YouTube channel. It's called DBT RU. So the letter okay. RU. You just Google, if you Google DBT RU, you mm-hmm. Videos, there are, I don't, and they're in French and English right now. Great. And there's like 20 plus videos that teach you in little short cartoon clips, some of the core DBT skills to make them more accessible to people. Wow. Okay. That's fantastic. So there are things like that, that she and her students are doing. Uh, she even has something for adolescents, although I quite like it for adults. It's called the game of life the game Ah. of life. And and it's like a card game. And there's a scenario, like you're, you're, I don't know, you're out at sea and your boat springs a leak and you pick (laughs) a card and you have to argue how your DBT skill would be the better skill to use in that situation. I love that. Like there's just some really neat ways of getting some good information out there. Um, We now live in a virtual world. It's a lot easier to find if you have money. I understand that not everybody has money, Uh, but you could get into groups now that are virtual. You don't have to travel as far. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something to be looking at. And again, depending, like if if this was a parent, there's different things I would refer you to. So it really depends, and I'm happy to send you some ideas and resources as well. But.
0: I will absolutely do that. I'll I'll email you, and maybe you can send me a few of those links, and I'll I will include all of those in the show notes for everyone. My cat right now, she's just rubbing her little head all over my laptop. (laughs) She's like, "Hello." Well, I'd love to. I'd want to be respectful of your time because I'm sure you you don't have um, a lot because you also are running your own practice. Um, my question for you, you know, you've talked a lot about over control and under control and mm-hmm. all of the exciting research that's been going on around that. And you've inspired me. I feel like I want to do like an over control, under control post on BPDT because I I haven't heard a lot about that. And I feel like that'd be something I'd love to oh, talk yes. more to about to my uh, followers but um, you've made so many scholarly contributions. I looked up like all the articles that you have taken part in and it's so amazing. What are you, besides over control and under control, what research and up and coming new stuff are, mm. gets you really excited about mm. emotion regulation and personality disorders in general, any other cool research that that's been getting you stoked lately? There's so
1: much, There's so yeah. much going on. Like, You know, I think one of the areas I'm looking at is um, really trying to adapt our treatments for, you know, both in eating disorders, but also in DBT for uh, First Nation, Indigenous, Métis. Just given where I live, there's, you know, our treatments are not, um, they're not culturally sensitive at all. Mm. Uh, So that's an area that I find really stimulating and interesting. I also... You know, I'm interested still in, in DBT and eating disorders. I think there's just so much work we need to do and, and continue to, we need to publish more in that area. So that's something mm-hmm. I'm working on right now um, and trying to put together how to help teams. Like I'm working on a book right now to help teams. If you, So if you wanna create a day treatment program or an inpatient program for eating disorders and personality disorders, using over control and under control as your primary way of separating mm-hmm. these things out, What does that look like? How do you do it Um, step by step by step? And so, you know, like you've said, throughout my career, I've just seen so much stigma and, uh, you know, a lack of the kind of treatment that I think people really deserve. And to see hospitals taking this in now, um, you know, I did over 75 trainings in 2021 to hospitals, organizations, community centers, that's huge. And, and I, it really, to me, that gives me hope. Yes, um, they're open know? and receptive to wanting they are. to learn more. They know it needs to be different. Um, and so anybody out there with, with over control or under control, it's out there. These, mm. these are not death sentences. They're just not. People understand what's going on now. This isn't 1970 anymore. And if you've got people who are judgmental, you need to keep finding other people.
0: Yes. I was telling, I've talked about in an episode previously with, um, Courtney, she's the truth doctor. She, she's very clinical psychologist, very open about the fact that she's, you know, she has struggled with BPD and she did such an incredible ending spot on our episode of the podcast of like questions that you can ask therapists, because what I think quite often, those of us with BPD, we're so desperate to get help that we don't realize that, you yeah. need to interview the person that that is going to be your yeah. provider, because I wish that it weren't the case, but there are people that may not be best suited to treat you based upon having their own biases and stigmas. And you kind of have to weed that out. And it sucks because I know when I was looking for therapy, Anita, I was not in a headspace of being ready to like coherently interview someone.
1: Exactly. Or even, you know, it'd be interpersonally effective sometimes, yes. like,
0: you know, you're just like and in save me mode. Like, please save me. <laughs> and somebody
1: who gets it will also not want to just jump into it either. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, somebody like, that's why we have a commitment phase of like at least four sessions to see if this is a good fit. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you were buying a car or a house or you're making some other major investment, I don't know about you, okay. but I, I don't just go, oh, that's the first car I've seen. All right. Here's my 10 grand. Maybe before my my recovery.
0: Maybe, maybe. maybe. I was gonna say the first guy I've seen, marry him. (laughs) Let's go. (laughs) Maybe. But you're investing. Not the best
1: strategy though. It's not, it's not, I generally don't recommend it, but you never know, you know. (laughs) You know. But I think, I think, you know, people need to feel empowered that to to ask questions, to shop around. And
0: any clinician that's gonna get offended by that is not your person. Yes, it's true. You have to be, you have to be on your guard. And I say it time and time again, you know, you, your best advocate always have to, even yeah. when you're feeling dysregulated, you have to just remember that at least for me, I'm like, no, one's coming to save me. I have yeah. to always make sure that I know that like, I've got my eyes open and that I, I am my best yeah. friend and my best advocate. It's the most important thing.
1: It's And it's so hard in a system that has been pejorative and stigmatizing, and it really is an uphill battle. And I, there's enough of us out there now, yeah. I believe, uh, that I think it's more likely to bump into someone who gets this.
0: I agree. And if you haven't
1: found them, keep looking. You've just yeah. got to keep looking because they're out there. So I'll send you, I mean, there's just so many things that are available online and things like
0: that, that people could at least get some good quality information. That's what you want. Yep. And you've got to use your discernment, right? It's like, make sure that you are being so picky about the content you're consuming. Because like I said, on another episode, I could go on YouTube and I could watch, I can watch Oxford University lectures. It's pretty amazing. That's not something that you could do that before, but you could also go and watch some really awful stuff that fills your mind with really like, incorrect information. So it's just, it's kind of like a, it's, it's good and bad just as life is though. Right. So,
1: and you know, you, you've got, like you said, I think it's about teaching yourself and other people how to be sort of media, how to be good.
0: Critical thinkers.
1: Yeah. Be media literate to know where you're getting something from, you know, and there's just, there's, I'll send you a bunch of stuff, but there's just too many good, good clinicians, good people out there like yourself, who are communicating really solid information. And, and that's yeah. the beginning. Yep, The beginning. People
0: deserve to know the science and the research to this point. Yes, they absolutely do. And there's just, if you can, I'm hoping that people listening to this episode can just be filled with so much hope because there are people like Anita out there Working tirelessly to a contribute to the research, b go out there in the field and be training people to start changing minds. Because it's not like people that are out there perpetuating the stigma, like you said, that have been practicing for thirty or forty years. It's not like they want to go harm people. They just don't know. They, but I'm sure that they would love to have more and better information to better help people.
1: You know, and you're right. And and even if they aren't willing, again, the tides are changing. Yes. You know, it's very hard now to find most hospitals even are looking to hire people with DBT training and experience. Mm-hmm. You know, universities now in uh, medical schools now have DBT and understanding the things we've talked about today as part of the curriculum. That wasn't the case when I went to school. Wow. You know, people didn't talk about these things. Uh, so it's, it's in the water. <laughs> uh, and I have a lot of hope. I've never felt I've never felt that that BPD is some sort of terminal uh, awful diagnosis. I actually think, you know what, just stay stay in the game, you're gonna be okay. Yes, um, It's a journey, It's a yeah. journey, but um, but you gotta just keep your head up.
0: I love that. Well, thank you for your time, Anita. It's been such a pleasure. Maybe all in closing, I would love to, we've already talked about uh, all the stuff you're involved in, but what's next in your world? What are you excited that you're working on in the immediate future? Is there, how can people on the podcast find you and connect with you if appropriate? How would you, what would you like to leave the listeners with?
1: Sure. I, uh, I, I think right now I, Anything that I am doing, a lot of it is training. A lot of it is just trying to help people manage through COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel a bit uh, overwhelmed. Uh, I'm working with yeah. a number of people on provincial and other strategies. Uh, I am on Instagram and I am on um, LinkedIn and those things. I have a Facebook page, but my the main source to find me and what I'm doing would be on Instagram. At, mm-hmm. at Dr. Anita Federici um, would you know, and I'm always trying to help. So if somebody's got questions, just like you and I connected, like it's just these kind of, it's, I love connecting with people. Um, Yes, And I love hearing what people, people really need. Uh, You know, I've never been the kind of researcher clinician that just sits in the sort of ivory tower and uh, tries to figure it out. I, I really like to co-create yes so and that's what you got to get is. your hands
0: dirty right you have to go down like go and, and mix with people and yeah I mean it's well I admire so much what you're doing and mm-hmm. I hope to have the opportunity to maybe have you on the podcast again one day who knows Would love to awesome love to. yeah absolutely well,
1: thank you so much Molly you're doing great you. you're, this is fantastic thank Good. you it's great
0: Ugh. isn't Anita great I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. She is just a fantastic human who is breaking down stigma, contributing to research, training others. I mean, what more could we ask for in a advocate and human, quite frankly? So thank you, Dr. Anita. You are just a gem. So, just a couple of housekeeping announcements. I want to give a massive shout out to our community on Discord. We just launched this thing like a week ago and there's already 400 amazing people in the Discord. Now, if you're looking for a positive recovery-focused community, if you have been wanting to connect with other fans of the podcast, and expand your self awareness, the Discord might be the right fit for you. So, if you are looking to join Discord, I'm gonna include that link in the show notes to join. Also, it is in my Instagram bio. The Instagram, which has just hit 10,000 followers not too long ago, um, we are at BPDT, that's BPD T E A. And as usual, if you would like to support the podcast monetarily to just support what I'm doing, you can find me at patreon.com slash back from the borderline. Any contribution is very much appreciated. Also, if you're not already doing it and you're listening to this podcast, don't forget how much juicy stuff I put in the show notes. So In the about this episode section, however the hell that looks on whatever podcast provider you're using, I put so much stuff in there. I put links and this week I put a bunch of links of stuff that Anita mentioned. So if you were listening to this episode and you're like, oh my God, what was that? I linked it in the show notes. So use those things. You know what I'm saying? I don't type all this stuff in there for my health, y'all. You gotta like go in there and click my links. (laughs) But the last thing I'll say is, if you haven't already, please do rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you're using. We just broke a hundred five star ratings on Spotify last week, and I was so excited. And I think we're almost at like seventy five star reviews on Apple. I'm like really excited because we've only gotten five-star reviews, but I'm mentally preparing myself because I know one day I will get something less than a five-star review. So my little BPD brain is preparing to regulate my emotions when that day does come because it is inevitable. But for now, thank you all so much for these amazing five-star reviews. I have the best listeners in the world. So until next time, that's it for me. I hope you have the most amazing week. Get out there and use some of this new knowledge and increased awareness to improve your experience and your recovery. Love you all. All right, that's it for today's episode. I just want to thank you so much for listening. Out of all the podcasts in the world, you chose to listen to mine, and that's amazing and it means a lot to me. If you like what you heard today and you wanna be notified as soon as each new episode drops, I got you. The best way is to follow my podcast. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts on an iPhone, you'll wanna search Back From The Borderline, click into the show's homepage and then click that tiny plus sign in the upper right hand corner of your screen it will turn to a check mark and then you are officially following the podcast now you'll never miss an episode if you love this content and this podcast and you want to support me as i continue doing this following the podcast is the best way to do that If you want to get access to detailed show notes for each episode, connect with me on socials, or reach out to collaborate, you can find all that and more at backfromtheborderline.com. You can also connect with me by writing a review in Apple Podcasts. Do you have a specific question you'd like me to answer or a topic you'd like covered on a future episode? Start with an honest rating or review of the show, and in the body of your review, include the question or topic you'd like me to address. It is my hope that you have the most amazing day, but if it isn't quite amazing, I hope at least our time together made it a little bit better. Alright, until next time.